pause. Jason, do you want to introduce this or Trisha? I'm, I'm done talking. I think Trisha should. Trisha, can you introduce oh, shit. this? What is this happening? Because I like bumped it and then I don't know. I'm just using a sports thing. I like hit it first, then Jason hit it, and then you hit it over the net. <laughs> I, I, mean, yeah, I was trying to do go. volleyball, right? Bumps, yeah, bump, set, set no spike. Oh, that took too long. That <laughs> <laughs> metaphor was too long. Don't ever use it. It was a good metaphor. You just didn't. I just didn't know what I was saying. I I think it was actually good. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends. Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. What's up? Hey, what's up? What's going on, everyone? I'm really excited at how efficiently you just opened the show after you like gave you read us the riot act about not screwing up and like Chris was like, we gotta do this in 50 minutes or you two are fired. And then like I was like, oh, you know, he's gonna take up 10 minutes trying to start the damn show, but you got it right on the first take. That was awesome. I have whiplash because I feel like you insulted me and then you complimented me and now I don't know what to believe or where to look. So I'll just say thank you. you while narrowing my eyes. It's That's a little exactly slits. right. With a okay. question. Thank you? Thank you? <laughs> it's like me answering the phone. Hello? Oh, remember before caller ID when you picked up the phone, it was like a wild mystery. Hello? Hello? Who's there? I'm trying to miss that. Is that like kind of don't. isn't it? Don't you miss the surprise of who could be calling you? No, I don't. I don't, I don't. I don't miss the surprise. You, you know, let's be honest. Do you even pick up your cell phone anymore? Yes. If the if you don't know the number, no. Okay. Hell no. There it is. So so then you don't miss the surprise, Trisha. <laughs> exposed, right. Trisha. That's exposed. Right. You don't miss the surprise. Well, it's just so rare. I mean, the thing about it is, everyone I know is in my phone. And so if you're calling and the number doesn't pop up, then it's definitely someone I don't know. Um, I wanted to ask you to something. I am in the midst of interviewing people for positions. We're interviewing a lot of young people. Mm -hmm. And I also know this from working, I also work at a university with uh, grad students. I noticed that like, I don't know, it's Generation Z, is that people in their twenties now? Really comfortable talking about their mental health in yes, interviews. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very love it. I, I haven't every interview I've done this week is someone saying, you know, I've really struggled with anxiety and I saw a therapist that was on medication and now da, 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 da. and I'm just like, oh I have you, <laughs> you experienced that at all? <laughs> I know. Have you do you know what I'm talking about? You know what's the it's funny you would say this because I actually I think I saw a Twitter thread about this younger people are mentioning that they went to therapy and it's in, it's just a general part of the conversation. And they also do check and name check their mental health. Like, Oh, yes. all the things that you've just said. And it's just like, they were Like, it's like, this is just exactly part of what it. it is. Just part like, of your life. Just like asking your dates of availability. They're also giving their DSM five diagnoses. <laughs> Jason, have you noticed this at all? I like it. I like yeah, it. I've definitely noticed it. I also think it's a little bit of the premise of Cobra Kai. <laughs> right, where it's like right. That's that. That's the whole fish out of water. Perfectly comfortable, you know, talking about all their weaknesses. Yeah, no, I absolutely have noticed it. That's I. I think that's so fascinating because even though I am a mental health professional by day, I'm always taken aback by it. Part of me, like the old Jamaican part of me, is like, oh, you should not say that. Don't don't say that. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. company. <laughs> But I kind of low-key love it that people are just owning that this is part of who they are. I just, 
I, it's I, the expansive I, vision that that generation has of themselves. Um, similar to, I think, the generation that was immediately behind us who were like, uh, work life balance, please. Those were Gen Y. We're yeah, Gen X, right? right? We're Gen X. We're Gen X for sure. And then there was Gen Y. What was their deal? I can no, I confuse Y and Z, <laughs> which is my biggest problem. Y and Z blend together for me. I thought yeah. Z was now. What are they now? What, no, what, are, you, what are millennials? Millennials oh, are Oh, that's the thing. Millennials that's are people thing. who are like in their late 30s right now. So Those are people oh, you know what? Which, like, I that, feel bad for millennials because for the longest time, people were confusing millennials with I think Gen Z. And people are like millennials are like, we have children. Yeah, millennials <laughs> are grown adults. <laughs> they have like a house and two cars and kids and careers. Like they're not, they're not young. Like Gen Z are like are like 20-year-olds. Yeah. Well, no, I I low-key love it. I love the attention on mental health. And I think that I think that should continue. I just wonder, you know, I just wonder where that's gonna go, like the next generation. Like, what else are people gonna be really forthcoming about? Oh, oh, I know. I just, I just looked it up, y'all. <laughs> what can they're going to be forthcoming you? about? No, no. Can I tell you what the generations are? Yeah. So there's, um, well, we can go the lost generation, which is like the, the youngest person today would be 106. The interbellum generation. Yeah, they must be all dead because I never heard of that. Moving on. Between the the greatest generation is 97. That would be the youngest today. The silent generation. Uh, they, their birth was like the 1920s. And then 1945, baby boomer generation. Those are uh, our parents. Those are, yeah, 57, 57 to 75 is like the range maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then generation X, 42 to 56, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Zennials, Z-E-N-N-I-A-L. Oh, that's S, not a real I, word, go on. That's I've not even a weird that. thing. Like, I don't even know, they're 36 to 46. Those are millennials. No, no, no. Millennials are 27 to 41. What? That overlaps. Oh, no. Yeah, that's no. The and they put that's them together. Strange. Millennials include Gen Y and Gen Next, because I do remember them wanting to call them Gen Next, too. Gen Z's, the oldest is like 26. And then the Generation Alpha. That's who's coming up now. I've that's never like, heard yeah. of that. Yeah, fuck that's those kids. It. That's anyone that all <laughs> oh, um, those are anyone that was born in 2013, 21, 2013 and, and, and above. So Gen Alpha, we've started all over again, I guess. So the I think the, the age group you're talking about, Chris, it, uh, it sounds to me like you are interviewing Gen Z and some millennials, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm, yes, Definitely Gen Z. Gen, Little Gen Z kid, sure. people in college today. They just Yeah, that makes sense. Gen Z. That sort of thing. Well, that's cool. Let's let's hope that continues. It's really weird. Millennials are old. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're 40. <laughs> they're approaching middle age. We, we, I'm, I'm married we, to one. By yeah. The way. Oh. That's, yeah. It's funny. I know. Because like, we think of them like they're whiny and whatever. I'm like, no, they're grown. But They're whatever. grown, folks. I think they, every generation just thinks the generation behind them is whiny. I don't think so. You don't think do so? You? Do you, I do. I, do, do, I, do, do so. I mean, the generation in front of me. I do think young people are whiny. Wait, do you really think that, <laughs> no, the one before Gen X is the baby boomers. Do we think baby boomers are whiny? No, I don't. I meant the people in front of us, not the in people front behind of you? us. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think the people in front, I mean, I just feel like everyone just suck it up. But like, Oh, I wonder if the silent generation hates the baby boomers. Oh, those, those no, baby well, they, they do, but they're very quiet about it. <laughs> 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 okay, let's, 
<laughs> let's slide into topics, please. <laughs> Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, was touted as a must read in our summer of racial discontent, which is what I'm calling 2020. But the backlash was swift in accusing D'Angelo, who is white, of cashing in on talking about racism. There's so many books written by Black authors about race. The thing is, is that in those books, I don't know so much about Kendi's book, but I know, and so you want to talk about race, like it is called out, like white people need to gather each other around the issue of race and leave BIPOC people out of direct racism education practice. I mean, that can be confusing for the well-meaning white liberal. On one hand, it's like, well, white fragility, Robin D'Angelo and these other white people, they shouldn't be cashing in on talking about race. But at the same time, we shouldn't look to BIPOC people to educate us about race. Is there a tradition of white liberal scholarship that whites can refer to as they go on their journey? And what should the role of BIPOC people be in those spaces? That's what I want to talk about. What do you two think? I think it depends on the spaces. I mean, I think... I think in workspaces, right? Workspaces, when you start talking about these issues, you've got to deal with the power differentials that exist. And then oftentimes the leadership are going to be white. The question then becomes like, can you really remove your employees out of that conversation? Mm -hmm. And wouldn't it be just you all talking to yourselves again? if it was like white leadership, right? So it feels like within a, within a professional environment, there has to be some ways of like bringing those groups together. I, in a personal space, I have zero interest in it. I am not even one of those people who want to do this sort of journey with you. I think I gave up on that in college. Oh, um, and- <laughs> yes, spectacularly, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Listeners, so, uh- let me tell you about Trisha. Trisha had zero time zero time for nonsense from white people in college. She was, she was woke before I, woke was woke. <laughs> was can, really I, can I ask you a question about that though, Trisha? Yeah. I'm curious if you were offered the opportunity to, you know, meet periodically with a like black affinity group, is that something you'd be interested in? Yes. I think black people have to talk. Listen, I saw, I, I wanted to say, I think affinity groups need to meet, but I do know that when you talk about affinity groups and white folks, it gets really tricky. Yes. Because the assumption is that when white people get together, it's going to get really problematic. And so I've often seen, I don't often see affinity groups of white people meeting. I think there's room for that. And I think that should happen. I was going to say a few things, but you just reminded me of something. I remember many years ago, I won't say which organization, I was working with an organization and we split, names. Up, we split up into affinity groups. And Name I remember names. there was like a moment where it's like, we're now going to split up into affinity groups. And like, there was like a black affinity group and a white affinity group. And I was in the white affinity group. And I remember as soon as we got in the room, you could feel the white people, us white people being uncomfortable. And this one white woman said, I wonder if they all feel as uncomfortable as we do. And I was like, first of all, I don't appreciate you assuming that we're all feeling uncomfortable. And I really don't want to assume that they're all feeling any one way. Um, but it was like such a perfect, it was like such, it's exactly what you're talking about, Trisha. Like the white people did what you were afraid that they would do. That, that's why you need do. white affinity groups though, because that sort of stuff has to be really talked out. Listen, not for nothing, but like people have been gathering in affinity groups before affinity groups were affinity groups, right? People, people yeah. live in affinity groups. That's what I'm right? saying. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. They the question is, what kind of work can you do yeah. in an affinity group around racism? And I think yeah. that's what it's coming down to. Like, listen, 
you know, whiteness is the problem, not white people. We talk a lot about about we talk a lot about white people on this podcast, but really we're talking about whiteness, right? So like when white people get together to talk about whiteness, should people of color be there to check them, hold them accountable? You know, you ask the average person of color, me, I'm like, no, I'm sick of checking white people about weight or about race. They know what whiteness is. They created whiteness. Like you all figure it out. You all talk about it. This is the other thing I was going to say. I mean, my, my personal opinion when it comes to white people and, affin- and affinity groups, and what I'm talking about is particularly affinity groups towards anti-racism, because I'm not really interested in any other kind of white affinity group. Um, like, a, like a country club or such? <laughs> <laughs> right. um, I think it's really important that you do two things. One, I do think it's useful for white people to get into a space among white people and talk about whiteness and racism and anti-racism. And I think it's really important. And I hear what you're saying. I'm not going to tell any person of color what to do, or you need to be in a room with me. But I think from an organizational kind of standpoint, that organization of a white affinity group, I think should meet in some form with an affinity group of color that's also committed to anti-racism and basically um, get feedback. And like we white affinity group are thinking about doing this. What do you think? Would that be helpful? Would that would we be helpful allies if we did that? Those are the two activities that I think are really useful and important for white anti-racist affinity groups. I think the, this question you asked, Chris, and it's a great question. Um, it's difficult on the on the profiting side. I find it a, that's a really interesting question. It's something I think you both know. I think about a lot is people profiting off of other groups of people um, of all different iterations. I, you know, that's just Look, in our society, we're in a capitalist society, you sell a book, a lot of people buy it, you get the money for it. Um, I would like to introduce my latest crackpot idea about uh, some big societal fix. And then it has been a while. I know I'm overdue. So here it is. Here it is, (laughs) listeners. Um, You know, we have this concept in our country and actually throughout the world of like intellectual property and royalties, right? And so if you're an individual and someone uses your intellectual property, depending on the conditions, you may get a check each time. I know where this is going. We need a collective uh, model of this. We need to say, well, maybe we can't point to one particular black person, for instance, and say that's their song, but you white singer are clearly, clearly using property or intellectual or sorry creative expression that is historically and traditionally black expression and you need to share your profits or pay some kind of royalty for the benefit of the group of people that it comes from so apply this to this conversation so i think that what i'd love to you know i don't know i have to admit i have not read white fragility i probably should people have told me i should i haven't read it um i don't know anything about robin d'angelo but uh, I hope that she is contributing a lot of her profits to anti-racist causes, particularly benefiting uh, directly people of color. And if she's not, I would like to strongly suggest that she does. <laughs> You're so funny. Like, like she hears you and she denies your request. <laughs> <laughs> you know what though? I, I was a part of a presentation around race. And I remember thinking to myself, I saw a comment that was written I think the comment was suggesting that the only person who could contribute to the space were people of color. And that to me is the big problem is that we don't tackle identity. We don't tackle white identity. Like I know to your point, Chris, you're talking about whiteness. There is like, we don't go, we're talking about blackness with black people. So there is a white identity. Mm -hmm. And I think people need to get comfortable and sit with that. 
and talk about what they think white identity is how white identity is maybe separate from whiteness because that's the challenge right it's like that is the challenge that is the challenge for them is to say is there an identity is there a white identity that's separate from this thing that that you all are hearing and then thinking is only negative which is i think why you don't people aren't giving themselves permission to meet and talk together because they assume by default that whiteness necessarily needs to be this thing. But we've talked about the idea that you dismantle whiteness and that in many ways, white people have to give that up. But if they're going to give that up, they have to find some other place to rest. Well, they have 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 to have, they have a white identity. Whiteness is evil, but the white identity doesn't have to be. I love love that distinction that you're making. It doesn't have to be. And I think if they were, I think if we encourage people to find that, but they have to hold each other accountable. And then, but that's, but this is now, but now this is the very crux of the problem. This is the question. They have to hold each other accountable. So you get a whole bunch of white people in the room and you ask them to do the very, very difficult work. Trisha, work that you and I can't even begin to understand of divorcing their identity from the very concept of whiteness. I wouldn't know where to begin. And so we're going to put these people who benefit from this system in a room and expect them to come up with a way to fix, solve, ameliorate that. Like, how do we trust that, first of all? And can they even ever be successful? And to what degree, what degree is the working together come into it? I don't have an answer for this. I really don't. Like, I have very well, little to say. You don't have an answer, but we don't either. We've been trying to do this for 100 plus years. Yeah. And um, and it's been our task to do it. I mm-hmm. think that this says, and lovely, this next generation of kids coming up, I think, I think actually those next generation of kids understand that it's part of their labor. So if you talk about built on the conversation that we just have about how they're willing to sort of tackle mental health issues and now they're willing to kind of unpack gender and pronouns, I think similarly, they can begin to unpack what white identity is. And maybe this push towards white nationalism that we're seeing sweeping across various nations is an opportunity for people to finally say, you know what, this is our issue. We need to have a conversation about what this means. We need to have models like they've got to create models Mm -hmm. so that they can imitate those models. And there is actually a legacy and a lineage of white people who did the right thing. John Brown, some parts of John Adams was like that. I mean, there, there have been people who have said this is wrong. And we don't have to defend it with like, they were products of their time. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like there were people who stepped outside of the grain even during problematic moments in their history. They have a legacy yeah. of that. And those people have read, written books. So I think there is an opportunity for doing that. And I actually feel like it's essential. Like I can't do that labor for you. We had a conversation a while back and it was like kind of around the edges of like, why are, you know, why are, working class white people enchanted by Trump. And I'm, I think it was you, Chris, who were like, you know, I read something about how like, we need to stop, we need to stop all that. Like we need to not waste our time getting in the heads of people. Like basically you need to politically overpower people. Like that's just the way it's gotta be. And I don't know exactly what that looks like in this scenario, but I, I don't know. Like, I, I, again, I tend to agree with you, Tricia. And yet there's a part of me that's like, God damn it. We're never gonna get enough white people to look introspectively, even among those who are completely willing. Like, so this white affinity group of men, I mean, here you have a group of white people who acknowledge that whiteness is a problem, acknowledge that racism is a problem and say, I am, I have signed up for anti-racism and I will tell you, it is still really friggin' hard. And then I think about all the white people that like, I don't wanna talk about whiteness. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not privileged, blah, 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 blah. 
I've had it hard too. Blah 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 blah. I don't know. I'm, I hate to sound. So I don't awful. think you can. But I <laughs> you're, think, you're very I, pessimistic. That was know, pessimistic for th- you, Jason. I know, wow. but I don't think you can start at the end. Listen, living is a journey. It's a lifelong thing, right? And it's the same thing like we've we've been introduced, introducing with really complex topics, abolition. You don't start at the end, right? Like you start with these baby steps to get you there. And it's like a marathon. Like you're not imagining it. You're going to do the marathon in day one. So the journey has to begin. It hasn't been working the other way. We simply don't have enough power to convince you of of our value or all those other things that need to be unpacked for for by POCs, right? Like I have zero interest in that. Now, listen, listen, to your point, Jason, you're right. Like there are some power moves that you can make. I'm not, I will say this. I'm not saying you have to get there before you take some concrete actions. Yeah. I'm saying that there are concrete actions that you can do in your powerful position within an organization that is an immediate opportunity to confront the challenge of whiteness. Like you can aggressively say, we're going to recruit this. You can aggressively talk about what your priorities are. You could do all of that stuff and you could double down on it and make those moves. Now, I think the thing is we've always assumed that people have to get to someplace emotionally and then do this other work, do them at the same time. Yeah. Like actively do the, actively change your organization to 50% people of color and then deal with the feelings that you have when you have to confront that feeling. Like, why is it so uncomfortable for you? What are the moves that you have to make? Like in this process, though, it, right? But in like, this process, you're suggesting it's white people suggesting that other white people do this, and then those white people holding them accountable. Well, think about, think, but you know what? Don't we do this in other places? Like when, um, when don't we do this around gender? Don't we expect men to begin to try to hold each other accountable for the ways that they conduct themselves as men? Don't we also do this for straight people? Straight people do this with their family members and, gay- and their gay friends and gayness. Like if, if, if somebody says something, I'm like, uh-uh, what'd you say? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and I don't even do it as an ally. I do it because I don't think it's appropriate. But we don't expect that around whiteness. Like every other space we're expecting, I mean, the only other place I think it's tricky is gender. I definitely think we have that problem, like men having to hold each other accountable for how they behave as men. Mm-hmm. That's probably a really complicated space that's similar. But around other things, we we expect that labor to happen. At so, Thanksgiving, we're telling auntie not to say that about Timmy, who you might suspect is gay. Yeah. Like, you know I mean? like, but at the, at the end of the day, this is what I want us to, we can't answer this question, but you're a well-meaning young white liberal, right? Yeah. Where do you I'm turn a well to? Old white yeah, yeah. That's why I said young because you because I don't want this to refer to you. But you're 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 just out of you know you go to college in North Jersey. You this during the summer of racial discontent. You were really activated. You're young. You're white. You're, your name's Kelly or Colton, and you just you want to learn more. You want to do more. Where do you go? That's that's I think that's the thing. Where do you go? Because I think that there is a there's a moment for especially young white people for them to get a proper exposure slash education to like diverse like DEI stuff. Like that's I think that's what I'm left with. If if people are like, don't buy D'Angelo's book, you know, you should be listening to people of color. And then those same people of color in their own publications are like, leave people of color alone. 
I mean, and I know that we don't well, have the answer. I just, this is the sort of catch-22. Can you do I both? Like. Although, uh, the can thing is, though, there are plenty of books, and I've read <laughs> some of them, written by Black people that are very instructive to white people. Mm-hmm. Like, if that's the question, then white people go out and buy a ton of books about the history of racism and about how race operates uh, in, in our country mm-hmm. that are written by Black people. Pay the Black authors of them, and you'll learn a ton. Okay. Yeah, I think I think so. And actually, I think it'd be super interesting. I think there's a I think there's a there's a there's a section of the web that that's like because I looked this up when we were talking about this a while back in my thinking teachingwhilewhite.org. And it's like, go back and look at the tradition of people who've held these ideas. I mean, yes, read John Brown, if you must. He's the oldest of the, the, the most famous one, maybe. But there are Jane Elliott's work. She's been doing oh, yeah. this labor for quite some time. And Grimke, like Sarah Moore Grimke and Rachel Horowitz. And like, there are lots of people within that tradition. I think what's sad is that we don't know more of them. So that tells me that we've, we've always historically thought that labor had to be done by others, not by ourselves, right? Like for, from a white person's yeah. perspective. So get those people to be popular go read them because they're going to tell you the difficult labor ahead. They're going to tell you the moments when you falter, you can't put that labor on other people. Mm-hmm. Like I was thinking to myself, think about any relationship that you had where you want people to be equals, like your mate, your partner, whatever you expect your partner to do some internal work. You do a, a lot, lot. <laughs> at <laughs> least half of it. You got, at least half yeah. of it. Right. You got to be the leader. You got to put more things away. I mean, and we're I'm all just conjecturing. Adults, this is right. Nice. We're all adults in the room, but it's just funny. I thought to myself, we're all adults in the room. Give them the chance to show themselves. Like, do now. Let's be honest. I'll be honest. This is Trisha. You know how Trisha is. I'm an yeah. exacting person. Yes, exactly. So I have very people assume I have very high expectations. So, of course, I will preface it by saying I have high expectations. My expectations is that white people will do the labor. It's hmm. the least we can do for each other. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like. All right. All right. Well, cool. Let's leave that there. I thanks for having that discussion because it's something that's been on my mind. Not that I. You have white friends. Tell them to do it. Ask I do. I I tell white friends all the time, and I tell white friends like when you go out into the space, you check other white people. You know, I went. Um, I'm going to tell this quick story, then I'm going to move on. But I got my vaccine at a hospital, and my friend was going the very later that day. And so he was texting like, what was it like? What was it like? I was like, when I was there, there was a white woman there demanding to cut the line, asking if people had appointments. And I was like harassing all the black and brown staff. And I said, when you go, if you see any white people there doing that, you gather them. That is your job. And he was like, message received. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the kind of thing that I think white, that's why I think it's important that white people gather each other around these issues. And like, we're just done, which I just don't, I don't personally want to do it. If you are a person of color listening and, and you'd like to do that, go nuts, but I will not be helping you. Like white people have all the tools at their disposable to disposable, <laughs> their disposal to make it happen. So make it happen. Um, good. All right. Let's move on to the second topic. Trisha. Last couple of weeks, Lil Nas X Montero video has been making the rounds and generating quite a lot of reactions, um, a lot of anger, some shock, some dismay. But for me, the question is, rather than sort of let the critics define what 
this is about. What I want to do is kind of talk to you two about sort of what you noticed in the video, what stood out to you, particularly in the video, what were some of the compelling images for you that kind of struck you, and then take a deeper dive, and what do we think the message is of this video? What do we think Lil Nas is trying to say? What do you think of the reactions to his video? And then can we place some of those reactions in a historical context to other videos that we have been old enough to have been around <laughs> for, i.e. Madonna, yeah. <laughs> possibly. Maybe all the way back to Little Richard, actually. Well, Jason, can you describe the video? Do you feel I, comfortable talking about... Jason, I can do. you describe... Yeah. And I have thoughts. I, okay. I well, just too. describe I, the video for people. If you haven't if you haven't seen Montero by Lil Nas X, first of all, you're late because it's yeah. been popular for about yeah. a month. You've but also, your eyes closed and the cover's over your head. If yeah, you but you sh- even Jason saw it. And even Jason saw just saw Get Out two weekends ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like, it, you might want to pause this and go watch the video. It's really quick. Um, but also, you may not want to be in public because it's so sexy. Uh, um, we'll Jason, link to the video. Yeah. And then you'll Jason, so you to find it. <laughs> can you describe it a little bit, Jay? I would say it's, it's kind of animated. Um, and it's essentially, I would say, two biblical. Well, that's not exactly true. One of them is a kind of biblical parody scene, I will say, is, is the kind of Garden of Eden. And you have the serpent with a very human face. That's one of the main scenes. And then the other main scene is you have a, a figure who's clearly supposed to be the devil or a satanic or, or demonic figure. And then you have, um, I think, a, a figure that it looks to me kind of like Lil Nas X, but again, kind of animated, who descends and does a lap dance on the lap of this satanic figure and then kills that figure. And it's very colorful. One of the things I wanted to say, I think aesthetically, it's really striking. Very pleasing. I mean, it's really pleasing. It's, I mean, it's, it's beautiful, I would say. Mm-hmm. And so just, I'll just say a couple of my reactions. So as I said, I thought it's really visually stunning. I mean, one of the things, I don't want to take us off track, but one thing I, as I watch it and as I read the controversy is like, I think Lil Nas X is also a bit of a marketing impersonal. Like he's just, he is brilliant and just really like knew how to push buttons in all different directions. And it's, it's very provocative. You know, I'm not a particularly religious person, but there's a little bit of like, oh my goodness, he did that in a video. That's, that's amazing. One thing that I found really striking and fascinating and just provocative on so many levels, I mean, it is explicitly uh, homoerotic. You know, the kind of lap dancing we're used to seeing in music videos, and let's face it, we see lots of it, it is usually a woman, a cis woman on a cis man. Like that's what we're typically seeing. And here you very clearly see a male figure doing a lap dance on a male figure. And it is, uh, it's no more explicit than lots of other videos, but I'm not used to seeing that in any video, especially, you know, kind of a hip hop video. So it was, it's, it's fascinating, very provocative and, and beautiful, I would say. But that's interesting. Cause I want to push back you a little bit. It's sort of oh, like please. the, it's not unique in its provocativeness, as you just said. We see this sort of we see this sort of imagery all the time, you know, um, in, in, inclu- including like the sex to violence sort of like that happens at the very end of this video. Yeah. We see that all the time. The queerness of it makes it unique. Yes, but I don't think anything else about the video is really unique in for this medium. I mean, I I distinctly remember the '80s. I I liked hip hop a lot, but I also liked heavy metal. 
And you had all of this scandal around, you know, Poison had a satanic figure on the cover of an album. And then they, they like recalled all the albums and changed the oh covers. And Motley Crue had a song, that. Shout at the Devil. There was this whole kind of thing. And again, this is where I say Lil Nas X is a marketing genius. Like, I haven't seen that kind of stuff in a long time. There was like a whole phase of like, again, quote, satanic, unquote, heavy metal imagery. And then the Christian right would yell about it and then it was like this back and forth and then like i feel like that's been at least as far as i know absent from popular culture for a long time he very i feel like lil Nas x very cleverly resurrected this satanic imagery but in a different way it looks different it's in a different genre than we're used to seeing it and i, I just found that really fascinating and, and provocative. anyway my point is like that it, maybe it's not totally unique but we haven't seen it in a long time and we haven't seen it in this kind of a uh, genre. To Jason's point, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about what the unique aspect of it is. And I will say the first watch, definitely him kissing himself. Yeah. Through the Cause he is the is, serpent. He's the he serpent. Is the serpent, right? the serpent and, 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 and Yeah. Yeah. And Adam and then that, um, but or I, Eve. I, I, or Eve. he's Adam and Eve and the serpent at the same time, which, you know, has, a long tradition of people actually asking the question of what the serpent really represents, knowledge, all of those wonderful things. But uh, to your point about the lap dance, I remember being struck by that too. Cause I was like, whoa, like there are hints and people tease at queerness, but to explicitly own it in a video, I thought that that was actually the most darling part of it for me mm -hmm. is um, not so much the religious imagery to be honest. Um, that didn't actually do it for me as much. It was more just the kind of like straightforward acceptance of his gayness such that he was driving on a man without any sort of hint of like, um, wink, wink. It was very explicitly, I like this. I enjoy this. This is what I do. You know how we always talk about sort of like the, the, um, the rush for, prop eight and marriage equality and marriage equality was sort of representing this thing like we're just like you mm -hmm. um but this is like explicitly no i have sex with men i'm not even going to tease you with it this is what i like doing and it's in your face that part of it was re really startling to me and then when you were just talking about sort of the legacy of kind of um motley crew and that whole there's a genre that was really acceptable Yes, people push back on it, but nostalgically people look back at look at back at it with fondness. That was acceptable for white artists to participate in. Thank you know, you. we've never really accepted this narrative around like Satanism or any of this stuff with black artists, mm -hmm. which I think was like also probably unique and different this time around, which maybe is why the reaction was generated because maybe maybe people think of black people as holding the soul of the country. And if we go down like a satanic road, maybe it means more things for them. I don't know. <laughs> But those were the things that I that struck me when I was looking at it. And then to hear you say Motley Crue, I was like, oh, yeah, there's a whole genre of music that I just kind of was like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. that's Satan music. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, and then the other part, I'll just say, I think it's interesting, though, that those artists, they're allowed or conceived of as artists and exploring. And I think it's kind of strange that people dismiss not Lil Nas as being simply just like a, um, a profiteer. Because those artists were profiteers too, but it's given a nothing, very different they vibe. All 
are. They all are, but yeah. there's a there's a different brush given to it. There's a kind mm-hmm. of cynicism about it. Like, oh, he's just doing it to do this thing. Like every artist is trying to get your attention. Mm-hmm. Every artist is trying to push the envelope. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I have so many reactions to the video and to what you two just said. There's so many parts of this. There's the religious aspect. There's the queerness. There's the fact that Little Nas X, like as a hip hop artist who start off with a country song was his last big hit. Like he's, you know, he's really an, in a new age, right? And so Jason, when you brought up like the eighties and that whole satanic thing, I need to divide up what happened there. You know, there's a couple of things that, a couple of things crash together in, in Montero, right? There's mm-hmm. blackness, there's religiosity, religious imagery, and there's queerness. There's a lot of uproar about it. And I think the religiosity piece is a red herring, honestly. I think we're exhausted of that conversation. We exhausted it and back in the 80s with heavy metal. And like now, you know, reports in the paper said recently that the country is the least religious it's ever been in like the past 90 years. Like for the first time, the number of people who indicated that they are religious or attend church is below the people who say that they don't. Like, I think that's a red herring. I think the reaction to Little Nas X is really about his blackness and then his queerness. Like I said in the beginning, you think about the fact that this is not a unique video. Like we've seen sex, we've seen violence, we've seen it so more explicit than it is in this video, you know, talking about the 80s. We've seen it far more explicit than this. So what what is it? And like, I'm also reminded of WAP earlier, uh, late uh, last year with Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. The, the reaction to that was outrageous. And again, the, those were black people exhibiting their sexuality without shame, without a wink, wink, just very much being like, this is who I am. Uh, I have sex. I enjoy sex. I'm going to talk about sex uh, and you're going to listen to it. The reaction to both WAP and Montero, I see that there is something bridging there. So I think the religious imagery is interesting, but it's well-tread. It's really well-tread. Like like you said, this is a 40-year-old conversation, and I don't see it being revived in the same way. I really think this is about Black people expressing their sexuality. I think, as always, white people are terrified of Black sexuality, and it's coming through by attacking these artists. All the artists you just mentioned, I mean, I can't imagine they weren't looking for the reaction they got. And I don't say that in a negative way. Like, it's a very smart way to own a news cycle, to keep your product in the public sphere. And just as you may be getting, you know, people in the Christian right, whatever, Jason, you know, pushing I back. I interrupt you because that's not fair. Why is that's it not fair? Because it's not fair to say that these people create the art simply to provoke you. Because first of I all- I didn't say simply, well, I did not say that. Okay, but that's, okay, I'm sorry. Then maybe I misunderstand what you're saying, but like the fact that they're trying to get your attention is literally what art is for. Yeah, I'm just saying like, WAP, even by the title, I'm not saying they did it only to provoke reaction. Okay. I'm saying one of the aspects of it was a brilliant marketing in saying something that they knew was going to be very provocative and get a lot of reaction. Same thing with Lil Nas X. And again, I'm not judging them for that. I'm saying they're more effective at getting attention than a lot of other people that are trying to get attention. But that kind of, that you kind of undergird my point, right? Because being so explicit about black sexuality, they know they're going to get a reaction. Because yeah. that's the kind of thing that incites white people, you know, when, yeah, when Madonna right. in, in the Blonde Ambition tour, when she was masturbating and fucking a bed, you know, the Pope got upset and she had to run out of Italy, but everyone else loved it. And it got, you know, I'm not saying that at the time people were not upset with Madonna, but like the kind of fever that we, and Madonna was allowed to be Madonna. 
Do you know what I mean? That's 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 just at the end of the day, Madonna was allowed to be Madonna after all of that, after like a virgin. Yeah, I mean, look, and I there's think, something to that. Yeah, no, there is, and I think going all the way back to like rock and roll, and as mm-hmm. I think you said, Trisha, like Little Richard, it's like um, there's always been something about like, oh, the black artists are going to pollute the minds of the pure white children yes. with their hypersexuality. That's absolutely present. It was present way back then. It's still present today. I, I absolutely, there's something to what you're saying. Like, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. Well, I think is noteworthy though is the is that attitude being adopted by conservative black people. The oh the poor children, oh the emasculating of black men, oh the erosion of values. I mean, I think what you have is there's this kind of interesting sweet spot now where you've got this critique of black music that traditionally wouldn't necessarily happen with black artists for each other because it's gendered and homophobic, right? So with WAP, you really saw it happen because people are really, black people are generally and at times really uncomfortable with female sexuality. So you saw like an overabundance of reaction. Like, I think you could think about different groups of people. So let's take white folks out of it. Because what I found interesting and noteworthy about this were black people's reactions, right? And what, what they wanted to embrace and what they didn't want to embrace. And so WAP was always tricky and, from a black woman's perspective, like how much is this really freedom? I mean, hello, you're actually recreating male fantasy. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure how liberatory that is. And I, I want to interrupt you just to say, like, I fully understand those shades of that. I'm yep. not saying that WAP was a yeah. you know, an ode to female freedom of sexuality because like that was problematic. I'm just saying like the reaction to it though. Right. That's, that's yeah, for sure. Want, the reaction to, to it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But the thing I find noteworthy and about it, about Lil Nas now is the reaction of the black community to what was presented there. Mm-hmm. And I think there was like the transgressive quality really was getting people a little antsy. And I think that's just a, that's just an interesting question for me about what was it that black people were reacting to? Is it the, was it the religious imagery? Like, I mean, are we assuming that black people are, have internalized ideas about our own sexuality that comes with the white gaze? Maybe for sure. I think, <laughs> but I think what about uh, our own reaction to that too? I think the reaction, when you think about like populations, it's okay mm-hmm. that people reacted differently for sure. sure. Like I think sure. white people are acting out of reaction to black sexuality. They always have. I mean, that's what always drove, have. when you look up the history of lynching, like the amount of genital mutilation, mm-hmm. you like oh you really God. have to ask yourself what the fuck was wrong with these white people that they were they terrified really of had it. issues. And they so, were issues with people. Yeah, they would, they would have like, picnics not, to watch in moss as and, that happened. Like and how, just what, all these people are interested in frustrations and like and not for nothing, the people who are complaining about uh, Montero today and WAP today, that those are their grandparents. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> no, but th- that's his really, cause not you know what? Let yeah, me tell no, you something. Cause they always love to show it on black and white pictures. Like we didn't have color photography back then to make <laughs> it seem like it was a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago that the grandparents of, of the people who are complaining today, those are the ideas. It's the same ideas around black sexuality. But to your point, Trisha, like what are black people upset about? I think black people, again, I think the religion's the red herring. It's the queerness, I think. Well, for sure. I think there's a little bit of a queer. Well, you know, I was curious about it. Like, so, you know, listen, we all watch things and we're titillated and what where did you find it transgressive? I did. I mean, I will tell you, I think I think Trisha used the world's word startling. Like I was I was like, 
I was like, oh my God, like I couldn't believe what I was watching. Like it was so, I'm so not used to seeing, you know, again, a man doing a lap dance on another man in a music video. I found it like really like, wow. Oh my God. I have not seen this before. Transgressive. Yeah. Because it breaks some sort of social boundary for you. Like even if you're for me personally, yeah, maybe like your own, like, like you, like we just, like you just said previously, the Jamaican in me went, yeah, okay. yeah, well, yeah. I'm, I'm admitting, like, I don't judge it, but like, yeah. I, I found myself like, oh, like my reaction, my first reaction was, oh my God. And then, then I was like, oh my God, I'm saying, oh my God, like, what's the big deal? But it felt like a big deal. I, I have to say, I mean, I noted it. I don't think I was startled by the imagery. I, I, I fully had a recognition watching it be like, oh boy, this is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I fully had that reaction, but like, if I'm going to talk about like my personal, like just me relating to the imagery, it was, it was fine. I, 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 I didn't find it particularly whatever. And I mean, as a queer person, I take in a lot of queer media. Seeing... How does it rate as a queer? Actually, I was curious listen, about that. How it, I mean, how does it rate as look, queer media? Because listen, there's a whole spectrum. So. I have been seeing men on stripper poles in real life and on videos for some time. I've seen men give lap dances, other men. I've gotten lap dance from other men. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I've, yeah, yeah. so it wasn't as like to, to, like, to me, it wasn't like, oh my God, I, I can't believe my pearls. You know, it wasn't quite like that. I think it, there's a lot of queer media, a lot of queer, uh, Trisha, you know, you've seen queer movies. Like you were in a face. It's my favorite. Yeah. Like, so this isn't necessarily, like when you stack it up against any scene of queerest folk, you know, it doesn't really get there. It's, it's pretty, oh gosh, I'm going to get crucified for this, but it's pretty light, honestly. I mean. Well, sure it is, but I think part of it if is you the just, If you dispense of, yeah. of the religious imagery, if you accept that there, because I do not buy that people are upset by that. And I know Jason, that was kind of like your point. I just don't buy it. But once of, you dispense with it, go there with you, Chris. really? Yeah, I think the I think the use and the um I think the flipping of religious imagery is quite shocking. With him like embracing the hell yeah, and the Satan, em- yeah, embracing the and Satan then taking over and taking over and actually saying I want to be Satan. Mm-hmm. Like I like hell. I'm going to hell. Let me go there and find that party you told me was going to be there. Like, I think that in some ways is really tricky and really startling. I think it's, so to to Jason's point earlier, it's like when someone says, I love my fatness. Mm-hmm. You've told someone that the thing that is um, worse about them and sends them to hell, they turn around and embrace and say, I love it. Like something about that feels um, punitive to the to the viewer to the viewer who felt like they always had that power over you and it's for challenging you to, the viewer for sure it challenges the viewer to say listen i'm not gonna let you define me in that way and so there's a kind i feel like there's there's i can't quite dismiss the religious thing the way you are you i have, mean it's it because he embraced subject? it so much. i think because of his embrace of it and again because i'm a queer person who watches a lot of queer media I don't know. There's all these like religious imagery in a lot of gay media because this is obviously an issue for gay people. They're constantly yeah. trying to work through it. Yeah. So I'm no stranger to seeing this imagery. I can't listen. Uh, honestly, and viewer, listen, viewer, listener, listen up. Like if you've seen gay movies or gay characters on series, let me point something out to you. If there is ever a scene where there is a costume party, I want you to see how many angels and devils you count at that costume party. It's like a trope. Like this comes up all the 
time. Yeah. I thought you were going to do me one better. What? I thought you were going to say, tell me how many times you see a sort of crucifixion figure. Oh, that's, oh, oh, listen, let me tell you something. In the nineties, they loved a moment in a gay film where some young twink has his arms outstretched either on a bed or wherever in a pool. They love that shot from overhead. Like that kind of imagery exists in queer media over and over and over again. So for me, it didn't hit me. I get that there are religious people in the country who will look at this, but again, I think black people watching this were probably more startled by the queerness. White people were more startled by the blackness and the religious thing. Little Nas X, he's smart. Like, it's really smart. He is smart. But I agree. Uh, yeah, I don't, that, that's that's my official line. I, it was an enjoyable. Did you enjoy it, Jason? I really uh, admired the artistry. Mm-hmm. I would not say that I enjoyed it. And, and I have to admit, as I've gotten older, I have less, um, I, I, let me put it this way. When I see sexuality of any kind, like, in like music videos and that kind of thing. Like I get increasingly judgy about it. And so with this, I wasn't judgy because it was gay sexuality, but I was like, oh my God. Like there was a little part of me that was like, oh my God, my kids are going to come across this. And like, do I want to see them, see them watching a lap dance to a popular song? You I should have that. You say that it's it's legitimate sex work. And you can have um, an, yeah, you can have an entire <laughs> conversation <laughs> with them around it. <laughs> you know what? It's so funny. I'm the total opposite. I mean, like, I think- But did you enjoy it? Let's start there first. No, no, I totally enjoyed okay. it. Yeah. I actually enjoyed it better than I enjoyed WAP because I liked the cheekiness of it. Mm-hmm. I liked the messaging of it. I thought this messaging was a little bit more empowering than the WAP message. I agree. That's because I'm a female, right? Yes, but um, uh, but I agree that yeah, just, just on just its face. yeah, On its face, it had much more of like an interesting message for me. And I liked the flipping of the script in different ways. I liked the embracing of like the dark side question and all of those kinds of things. Because the dark side that he embraced was transgressive for people. Like, mm-hmm. it's different when you say the dark side that I'm embracing in WAP is like basically showing you my vagina. Who wants to do that? Dudes. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm not embracing something that is actually challenging for the culture to deal with. <laughs> like, in a, in a strange mm-hmm. way, you're repackaging a wet t-shirt contest. Yeah. yeah. And everybody wants a wet t-shirt contest. Mm-hmm. Right. That's very true. Um, that's no, that's different. so good. That's you very know what true. I mean? And so mm-hmm. for me, this feels like I'm packaging something to you that I know is still going to be difficult for you to handle. And that feels like um, a really big thing to do. Um, and so, that yeah. Very I well said, Trisha. Yeah. Very I well said. Song. I laughed at it. I enjoyed it. But also, I also have gotten to this age now when I start having a weird reaction, I have to check myself and ask myself why. And then I have to go down a road because I was doing that even with WAP. I was like, oh, what is going on? I remember that. You were like, oh, oh, these women, what these girls cover up, ladies. And then and then I was like, well, let me unpack that. What's the reaction? What am I doing? What am I feeling about it? And then I started watching it all the time. Yeah. You know, because I wanted to explore. I think I I think I love the idea of having like an immediate reaction to something. Mm And then if it's dismay, like unpacking what the dismay is. If only more people thought like that. I was just going to say, that I, would that's be very wonderful. mature of you. I don't know yeah. that I could. I don't know claimed. if it's mature, but I'm just like trying <laughs> no, to like. No, I, I love you that. Know? It's inquisitive. Like, I love that. I feel dismay. And I think about whose fault is it that I feel dismay? Because <laughs> okay. it's All sure right. isn't mine. <laughs> okay. You know what? And then so 
with that, let's move on to media recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Trisha, you go first. So someone re- recommended this book called Deschooling Society, and it's by Ivan Illich. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I'm reading this book, and then I was like, wait a minute. Is Deschooling Society like Defund the Police? Like, I didn't get the D. Like, it was just one of those things. I was just reading it as a word, you know what I mean? And then as I'm going through the book, it's basically making the case that schools are preparing students to maintain the status quo of schools and of societies. And so the question becomes, what is the challenge for you as an educator? Like, how do you embrace a kind of radical liberatory tradition around schools? And because I work with education, I like to read people who critique it. So that's why I picked it up. And guess what? I ordered the book. It was like 70, 80 pages. It was like one of those thin books. That's like a pamphlet. I mean, it was great. It was so thin. And I like read read it through the whole weekend. And I I just, um, I really like the ideas. Just like how Defund the Police is really sort of, um, it, it just gives me, other ideas to think about. It gives me a different way of imagining the world. The same thing with de-schooling society. It really asks me to think about how people learn, where they learn effectively. Are we doing a good job at it? That's what I read and I really enjoyed it and it didn't take me too long. Jason. This may be slightly cheating, but a couple of, of episodes ago, I recommended a book called Bloom, which is book one of the Overthrow trilogy. I just finished the second book, Hatch. It was so good. And again, I am not typically a fan of sci-fi. Again, the book claims to be for nine to 12 year olds. I think it is so scary. I mean, I had to put it down several times. (laughs) If you told me the premise of the book, I'd be like, oh, that sounds like I won't be into it. But it's like- You really want people to read this book. This is like two weeks almost in a row that you recommended this book. I know I read this one fast. It is so good. Love that though. Oh, so good. I love when you find a book you love though, and you just like keep pouring over it. My test of a good book is whether I'm so tired, but I keep reading that I drop the phone on my face because I read books (laughs) on my phone. Wow. No, that happened like at least three or four times reading, reading Hatch. Where I was like, okay, I got to go to sleep. I love this, but I'm so tired. I'm dropping the phone on my face. I got to go to sleep. That's so good. When I'm a book critic, that's going to be like, that's, that's that's like five stars. I give this book five face bruises. Chris and, I, Chris and I read a book together where we could not stop reading it. What like book that. was that? Uh, the one where everybody, Blindness. Oh, um, yes. Blindness by Jose Saramago. Really <laughs> I've never heard of that. You're kidding. All right. Well, then my recommendation this week <laughs> is the book Blindness by Jose Saramago. <laughs> it's an oldie, but it's a goodie. You Talk know, about was- bump set spike. My goodness. <laughs> I was gonna. I was recommend another book, but like the book that I was gonna recommend is not as good as this one. So blindness. Jose Saramago (laughs) tells weaves a tale in this unnamed country, unnamed city, unnamed country. So suddenly, everyone is stricken with blindness simultaneously, and it follows the adventures. Is the wrong way to put it. It It follows misadventures. Misadventures. (laughs) It follows the trials and travails of a group of people who are struggling to survive in this new world where um, no one can see. It is heartbreaking and it is, oh boy, it, it says a lot about the human condition. The thing about it, it's it's not a thriller. At the end, everyone gets their sight back. 
I want to put that out there because it's really the journey that people go through. And much like The Walking Dead that I recommended a couple of weeks back, it's sort of like, it's one of these stories that takes something really fundamental about society, turn it upside down and watch what happens to the people in that society. There was a movie many years ago, which was very hard to watch because there is a, um, I think it's a prison scene that in the book it reads one way, but in the film, I literally had to get up and leave just because it was... uh, I, I was just really triggered. Like there was a woman, she was going to be sexually assaulted by dozens of men. And I was like, I, mm. nope, this is not for me, not for me, not for me. Uh, but I highly recommend that you read this book. It's really good. Um, especially the way that it's written is really kind of, he's got an interesting relationship with punctuation and capitalization. It just, the Ooh, whole book feels like a dream. It's very interesting. So You're so I, funny. I, you recalled it so precisely. That was it was a really ago. good book. It was a really good book, you know, and the experience of reading it was as powerful as the story itself. It Check sounds it out. like if you had been reading that on your phone while you were in bed, you would have dropped it on your face. I would have, I would have, Maybe. I would have just been gasping and I would have dropped the phone in my mouth while choked to death. Uh, I give this book uh, one cell phone lodged in your throat. That's the highest rating I can give a book. <laughs> That's awesome. (laughs) So there it is, everybody. Listen, I'm starving. Listeners, you should know the sacrifice I've made. I'm starving to death. (laughs) These two came in late. No, I'm kidding. You weren't late. But we started late. No, you were really on time. But um, I I love you all, but I've got to run. So on that note, bye. Bye. Bye.